Happy Monday, and welcome back to the podcast where we are breaking down a movie one minute at a time. We call this the Best Minutes Podcast, and each week, Movies by Minutes hosts will examine this 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Alan Sanders, host of the Wilder Ride podcast. And I'm Walt Murray, co-host of the Wilder Ride. And we are back for another week. While everybody's getting two weeks, ten total minutes, we already have one week under our belt, just one more to go. I get halfway through, I always think, gosh, all the work, all the preparation, all the research, and then I'm like, oh no, we're we're almost done. We're, we're, we're at the halfway point. Yeah, kind of crazy, isn't it? It feels... It, It's both awesome, and then I feel a little down, like, oh, we're going to be done at the end of the week. Well, and when you're used to doing a hundred and whatever episodes of a a movie, and you start getting into that flow, and you're excited about it, and you like the movie, and then it's like, oh, I've got to hand it off to the next guys. Yes. Now, that is actually both good and bad. It's it's bad for us, because once you're into something and you've done the work, you feel like, well, I just want to keep going. But it's good for the audience, because they're going to get a chance to be introduced to a whole lot of other groups of Movies by Minutes podcasters. And so I'm going to start off this Monday again, just quickly reminding everybody that after this week, when we get done with the Wilder Ride treatment of the first 10 minutes of this movie, the next 10 minutes are going to go to the Rocketeer Minute. Jim O'Kane and and company are going to bring you the second round of minutes, uh, two weeks there. We're going to follow it up with the Indiana Jones Minute, the Two Minute Terminator, MASH Minute, Father David Mowry with a bunch of different guests, the Point Break Minute, Ghibli Minute, Apollo 13 Minute, Cock and Bull Minute, the Real Jaws Minute, Better Off Dead Minute, Bull Durham Minute, Five Minutes of Bonsai, the Marine Corps Movie Minute, Deep Blue Sea Minute, and the whole thing will wrap up on the Jay and Silent Bob Minute, the guys that run that podcast. So a lot of cool folks that are going to be analyzing this post-World War II flick. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to it. I I said this last week, and I really mean it. Every group that has a uh, a few minutes of this movie is going to do a great job. I mean, all of them have done fantastic work previously, so I'm looking forward to going through this movie with each of these teams. All right, well, let's dive into the minute. When we last left, our two uh, characters that seem to be now uh, joining up are both getting put on a B-17 that's going to make a couple of stops along the way, but eventually will land them both in Boone. And the last we left, we'd been introduced to Homer, we've been introduced to his handicap, and we recognize that it only took just a second, and everything sort of got diffused. Homer diffused the situation, didn't make anybody feel uncomfortable. The other two guys felt like they were going to have to help him or, or offer, and he was like, no, no, I got this, and it instantly kind of reset everybody, including our main character that we, uh, or at least the character we were first introduced to, Captain Derry, who, you know, claps his hand on his back and is like, all right, let me help you. We'll go get your bags. And the last thing we remember, they were picking up their bags from the dude sleeping along them and getting ready to head out the door. And we actually have a couple of lines of dialogue before we get out onto the tarmac. And we're learning just a little bit more about where Homer lives. Yeah, that's right. And it's... uh you know, we wrap up our, our scene here from the, what is it called again? The uh, military air transport? Is that? It's the air transport command. Or the shack. <laughs> so, it's not the love shack. It is it's the not the love shack. shack. <laughs> so we uh, we finally leave there and, and head out to uh, to a not so comfortable military flight. And I, I guess Fred was expecting, you know, he was going to head home on a... Um, 
on a luxury commercial flight, but instead this is what he gets. Well, he didn't want to wait. Uh, before we even get out to the plane, and by the way, they do a very good job getting the camera into what, if it's not an actual B-17 at this point, it certainly was a good cutaway to give you the sense of just what kind of tight quarters you're looking at in the body of the plane. We're going to talk about the B-17 a lot, I think, in this episode, since we're going to start looking at the interior. But we get uh, Fred asking, so whereabouts in Boone do you live? And Homer responds, over on West 17th Street. You know where Jackson High is? You know where Jackson High is. So we get the high school that he either went to or knows where it is. Fred says, sure. He goes, well, it's just a couple of blocks past it. And at that point, we dissolve, and Fred and Homer are arriving on the starboard hatch of the B-17 bomber. You are right about the tight quarters. That was the first thing I noticed when when they got in that plane, is it is a small, small inside airplane, uh, even though from the outside, it looks huge. Well, it's a four-prop plane, which ironically was about the same size in terms of wingspan and engine of that DC-4 we talked about that he had to walk underneath as he was leaving the civilian side of the airport, heading over to the military side. Uh, but obviously not the kind of posh or plush interiors that you would expect in a civilian airline once you see the interior shot. Uh, they don't even have walls. It's just the, uh, the, the, the steel reinforcement ribbing and girders all holding the, the skin and the plating of the plane together. Yeah, and it was actually designed, and the first one rolled off the line in 1938. So, uh, I, I actually, when I looked that up, I could not believe they were actually designing it in the thirties. It took them obviously a few years and prototypes and work, but yeah, that it, it was a, a thirties era concept that, uh, didn't even roll off the tarmac until late, like you said, 1938. And then was, I think sold to our allies initially until we got involved. All I can figure is at that time, they kind of knew something big was coming and that they were going to need a heavy bomber. So the B-17 for the first part of the war definitely filled that role. Yeah, it's uh, and it's the most, I, I think it's the most typical in terms of World War II movies. When you start talking about bombers overhead and you start talking about American bombers or bombing runs, it almost always is images of or at least video of the B-17 Flying Fortress. Well, yeah, and it was used uh, predominantly in the war in, in Europe, but it was used some in, in the war in the Pacific. So anytime you see those movies where we're bombing the Germans and uh, the Axis powers, that that is normally the plane that you see. Well, I do have a, just a little bit of information for those who are uh, the more aeroplane geeks out there. Uh, very quickly, it is a four-engine heavy bomber, as we said, developed in the 1930s for the United States Army Air Corps. They were competing against Douglas and Martin, talking about Boeing, for the contract to build 200 bombers. And uh, according to what Wikipedia has on this, the encyclopedia that is never wrong, of course, of course, um, that uh, they initially uh, had a couple of prototypes, but uh, Boeing lost the contract initially to Douglas because the prototype crashed. And the Air Corps then ordered 13 more B-17s for further evaluation. Now, from its introduction in 1938, the B-17 Flying Fortress evolved through numerous different design advances, including at one point, did you know that the radio room had a machine gun for the radio, uh, the communications person, and they suddenly realized it's in the worst possible place to put a gun, so they ended up taking it out saying, well, let the comm person talk, 
work just about nothing but communication. We're not going to bother even giving him responsibility for defending the fortress. I guess that's wise. I, I yeah, because you got to have that communication. But I would not want to be the radio man sitting there with no no defense whatsoever. No. Uh, but at the same time, you're going to find out. And I and I I did a lot of uh, research on the actual layout of the B-17, trying to get a sense of it, because we're going to find out. Um, and I don't want to give too much away for the minutes coming, but that Fred was on one of these very planes. In fact, we're going to get at the end of this minute where he's going to suggest where they can go during takeoff. And then they're going to come up to the nose of the plane so they can take a look at the good old U.S. of A. So. Uh, do you want me to go into the, the layout of the plane now or when we get to that point? Do you want to talk about the, the dialogue going on here and meeting now a third guy? How do you want to how do you want to proceed on this Monday? Why don't you talk about the layout of the plane just to go ahead and, and give us that that overview so we know what's going on? Okay. So there's various compartments and areas within the plane. Obviously, the flight deck is pretty easy easy to understand. That's where the captain and the the, the pilot and the co-pilot are gonna be up there. Uh, you'll have a, an engineer who actually will be up in that same area behind them, responsible for all of the circuitry, all of the uh, I- instrument panels. In fact, his main job as the engineer panel was to truly look at all of the buzzers and lights and the subsystems to make sure everything was working and would be required, if possible, to make f- repairs while in flight, either to their bombing run or hopefully back home. Uh, one of his jobs was also to grab. The uh, top gun, you know, there was a a couple of uh, uh, machine guns on the B-17, and the top gun would have been his responsibility, but that was right behind the flight deck where you would see those two guys. Uh, The very nose of the plane is called the forward section of the B-17. Now, you got two compartments. You've got the area that's directly underneath the flight deck, which you wouldn't even be able to sit straight up in. It's where you would kind of crawl in from uh, there was like a, a, a hatch that you could crawl in from the nose of the plane, and a lot of the instrumentation and a lot of the hydraulics were all there. Uh, the the uh, gyroscopic bomb site was up there. A lot of the instrumentation, of course, so that'd be a way to get in past all of that stuff. There was the nose where the bombardier would sit, and that is actually all glass opening. There was a machine gun there that if the bombardier uh, had to defend them he, themselves, he could actually do that. He could actually get into and uh, and fire the machine guns, the, the uh, large caliber machine guns on the front of the plane to help defend the fortress, either on its way there or on its way back from its mission. But uh, I thought this was kind of cool. Reading about this, it said that the bombardier and the navigator would have worked in that front nose section. The navigator had his own wooden desk complete with an with an articulated lamp that would have been used for scrutinizing the maps and fuel consumption charts needed to figure out where the bomber was, how much time it had before it needed to turn back. The bombardier had what was essentially a small office chair anchored to the floor where he would sit looking down into the bomb site. There was also a small panel that would not have only allowed the bombardier control functions such as opening and closing the bomb bay doors, but also displayed some critical information such as airspeed and altitude. So that would be sort of like office furniture, like a little mini desk for your navigator sitting up in the front of the nose, along with a, a bolted down chair that you got, you could just sit there and, and then lean over the, the bomb site to look down over your target. It is amazing how much you were able to do in that small space. Oh my gosh. And I'm not even done. 
Now, the bomb bay room is obviously the central portion of the plane where the bombs would go. It could hold up to a maximum of about 8,000 pounds of bombs. Now, put in today's capacity, most of our large bombers will carry up to 70,000 pounds. That's crazy. Of of uh, of bombs or uh, ordnance to drop on targets. Um, the radio room, which we're going to hear about in this minute, so I figured it's worth talking about. The radio room was actually the best room, and so it makes sense that our character, when he recommends they go sit back there for takeoff, uh, the radio room was the only room that you could actually stand up fully in. You could actually stretch out. There was enough headroom and niceties, like there were wooden chairs. Uh, there was a wooden door that actually would close off the room. It was uh, as best as they could soundproof to be able to allow the communications person a chance to maybe hear what was going on as they moved as a fleet, if they were re- re- you know, relying, uh, relaying information back and forth from command or to other posts that they were going to be either landing to. Um, in early versions, as I mentioned, the B-17, there would have been a 50 caliber machine gun mounted there as well for defending the plane, but they realized it didn't make any sense and you couldn't really get a good angle and you couldn't even good, get a good firing position. So that was removed. That allowed, at least in theory, the men who worked the radio equipment to concentrate fully on communicating with the rest of the formation and or keeping the flight crew informed, even in the heat of battle. So when we hear about these guys uh, going into the the communications room to take off, they would have actually had to crawl across the very narrow Bombay central portion of the plane to get up to the radio room. Everything else then to the back of the plane was considered the gun positions of the uh, the tail itself. There was a tail gun for the B-17. So you had multiple gunner positions. You had various places where individual flight, flight crew members would be stationed. But the cool thing with this minute that we're going to get to is when Fred suggests going to the radio room or the communications area for takeoff, and then they could go to the nose to take a look, he was 100% on the money. If you wanted to pick the best place, if you're not in the cockpit, to relax and enjoy where you could stand up, stretch, have some room, you wanted to be in the radio room. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, remind me, what did Fred do on the plane? He's going to say here that he's a he was the bombardier, that he sat at that chair over many a different target. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. I don't think we get that till tomorrow, technically, in terms of the flow of the story. But it's very, based on the research that I did, I was like, this guy... Yeah, the writing is obviously based on somebody who understood this, but in terms of the character talking, he understood his way around the B-17 very well. Yeah. Well, I I know everybody initially in the war flew 25 missions before you could go home, but towards the end of the war, they re- they didn't have that rule anymore, and you just flew till you were done. So he probably had spent hours and hours and hours in that thing. Yeah, I don't know when that rule either went in or went out. I know that was a big, you know, it's funny. There was a, a huge Spielberg directed. Remember, um, oh, what was that show? Amazing Stories on NBC when oh, it first yeah. aired. Mm-hmm. And I remember the big one that he directed. They were like, oh, Spielberg's going to direct one. was about a, uh, a B-17 bomber and a guy being stuck in the belly gun. And they were going to have no choice but to, to, to land, uh, crash land it or belly land it because the gear on one side, the 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 wheel wouldn't come down. Yep, and the crank and was, was broken. Typical, yeah, and so they realized the guy was going to get killed on the landing because he was going to get smashed inside the belly gun. 
And the whole point of that movie or mini story, uh, the imagination of the belly gun bomber, he starts animating a, a wheel and then an animated wheel shows up and they miraculously are saved. Kind of a hokey story, but um, even still back in Spielberg's uh, amazing stories days, that was the B-17 as the central character. I remember that episode, and I think that was the last time I watched it because I thought it was so cheesy. It was so good up to that point. You know, it was it was great Spielberg direction. It was tension. They And then it was just, I get it was trying to be Twilight Zone-ish, but maybe more family-friendly. But, I mean, come on. That, I remember even as a, I guess I was a teenager at that point, probably a rising teen where I'm already starting to lose some of the magic of watching cartoons and believing in a lot of the fanciful things that maybe we would have bought as a seven, eight, nine, ten year old. I was like, come on, we watched this whole thing. It was an hour long special. All Steven Spielberg directs and it ends with a freaking cartoon wheel. It was so lame. <laughs> I mean, it was so yeah. lame. I I I really I had a hard time watching that. I and I don't think I ever watched an episode after that. Because I was so disappointed with that one. Yeah, it wasn't... Like I said, it, I've always appreciated Spielberg's eye for direction, camera movement, the sense of when to move to another character or how to get from one point to the other and keep the audience engaged. But sometimes, yeah, just some of the choices. I mean, a lot of people don't think he should be doing comedies. A lot of people didn't like his 1941. I happen to be in that field where maybe it's because I was 12 when it came out or 13. I laughed my butt off, and to this day, I still think it's a great, fun movie to watch. I know it's his weakest, or maybe one of his weakest, but uh, you know he's he he may not be gifted in comedy. I will tell you that this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but I still like that movie. I watched <laughs> 1941 about two years ago, and granted, I have a very goofy sense of humor, but I I still love it. I you know when. John Belushi walks into that store and he goes on that big rant about everything. And uh, I, I still find that movie to be hilarious. Um, and I, I would, you know, I know that it has, it was not successful. <laughs> it crashed and burned in the, in the box office, but it to me still holds up the scene on the submarine. My gosh, where, you know, the Hollywood, Hollywood, and then <laughs> when they capture the farmer. And, and, where, where Hollywood? Right here. Hollis Wood. Hollis Wood. Right here. <laughs> and he swallows the the, um, the compass. The compass because their compass is broken. And and then they make him drink prune juice and he throws his boot in the toilet to make him think he's going. I mean, like, that is a great, hilarious movie. And it really should have gotten more props than it did. Yeah. You know what I think that movie was for? And maybe that's why I liked it when I saw it. And maybe you felt the same way because we're around the same age range. It was as close as you probably have ever seen at that time to a live action cartoon. Like everything was cartoonish. Like the Ferris wheel going down the boardwalk, the guy in his flying tiger chasing Japanese zeros in the Pomona fields or the alfalfa fields of Pomona. And, you know, it was it was like a cartoon. You could have recast it with Bugs Bunny and Donald Duck, and it would have been the same kind of shenanigans and hijinks going on. I agree with you. And, I, you know, Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, um, <laughs> you had a great cast. I mean, everything about that movie should have been awesome. And 
<laughs> Even didn't have the guy who was um he had, it was one of the guys that was in the fraternity with John Belushi and Animal House. Um was in it too. He played kind of the obnoxious uh lieutenant who um Oh, I can't remember. I do know Treat Williams was in it. He was one of the main um antagonists to one of our heroes. Uh you had uh Robert Stack was in it. Yes. Um, I mean just there were t- like everybody was in that movie because here it is Spielberg, you know, the 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 whiz kid of Hollywood, he can do no wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> right. I will tell you this, I know we're spending way too much time on 1941 and not enough time on the 1946 film in front of us, but even if you don't like the movie for direction, for sound, for spectacle, just watch from the time the dance competition starts to the time it turns into a into a literal uh, fight between the army and the and the navy, and ending with <laughs> Sal saying, "I don't know, maybe maybe next week we'll we'll invite some folks over and we'll have a good old fashioned race riot." You know, I mean, it's just <laughs> right. it's just that moment with the sing 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 an adaptation of the uh, of the the classic big band song done by John Williams for the for the for the soundtrack and dancing and running around and trying to win the competition and try to avoid being punched out by Treat Williams starting a fight I mean that entire sequence is just brilliant start to finish it is it is and you're right we're spending way too much time on 1941 but I have a feeling we have a movie we might need to do on yeah. one of our Patreon episodes <laughs> cuz really can you spend too much time on 1941 you know, uh, we if people might say we might make it funnier for them. <laughs> so, we, we very well may. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get back then to the dialogue of this movie, just because we've got a B-17. And th- another reason we thought of, or at least I was kind of on the 1941 kick, was remember the whole woman, like the, one of the subplots, she could only uh, get really excited yes, in a plane. And there was right. the bomber, and they ended up getting in a bad like rundown bomber. All he wanted to do was just make out with the girl. And she thought we're going on a bombing run. He's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's but right. Yeah. Bombers. Bombers have been a, a central character in several of uh, several movies, including uh, 12 o'clock high air force, red tails, Memphis bell. So uh makes sense that, you know, the B 17 is such a mythological plane that uh, just right off on the heels of world war two, uh, kind of cool that we're actually in, the 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 structure of a B seventeen once we're out on the tarmac and we're going to get introduced to a new character here let's go ahead and talk about I don't know if you've got any actor notes but as they get into the plane all of a sudden Fred looks over and sees a guy that was trying to maybe sleep uh, maybe he was actually already on the plane waiting because because remember we heard it's going to take several hops and I was like oh hi Sarge he's like oh hi yeah and he goes my name's Fred Derry and sits down across from him and we hear that his character name is Al Stevenson. That is right. And Al Stevenson is played by the great Frederick Marsh. And he was born in 1897. If you can believe that. Died in 1975. But he, we talked a little bit about him earlier on. But an amazing actor. 88 credits to his name. Uh, His final credit, The Iceman Cometh in 1973. But he was in a... um, a movie that I think deserves to be mentioned here, or actually a TV show uh, documentary called The Presidency, A Splendid Misery. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> I think we can all relate to that right now here in 2021. Um, he was also, he, he had a cool show that he worked on called Frederick March, 
presents Tales from Dickens. And he was the host and narrator for A Christmas Carol, which is one of my favorite holiday stories. Uh, He was in a ton, ton, ton of different things. I mean, 88 different movies and TV shows. So uh, he was in The Death of a Salesman. He played Willie Loman, uh, of course, the the main character there. Yeah. Um, The Adventures of Mark Twain. Um, a, a movie called I Married a Witch. I think I might have to check that one out. Uh, Trade Winds, There Goes My Heart, The Buccaneer, A Star is Born, the original A Star is Born from 1937, uh, The Dark Angel. It, he just has a litany of movies that he was in. So a very well-known actor at the time, uh, great talent. Uh, so that is played by Frederick March. I believe I read this somewhere, one of those little interesting off bits of trivia, because it's spelled Frederick, like F-R-E-D-R-I-C. Right. And if you look in the credits, I think in the end credits, I don't think it's at the beginning, I had to double check, they put an E because whoever was typing up credits thought it was a typo and that it was Frederick. Oh. And he had people do that to him his whole life. They always thought there was an E missing from his name. Well, I was just calling him Freddy. Just call him Fred. Hey, Fred. Big Fred. When you're on first name basis, you can kind of shorten it. Exactly right. (laughs) Right. I'm sure you'd appreciate that. Well, it looks like they've set up Fred, Derry, and Al to be a little bit older. And yet they've all, you know, they've all seen things. And obviously when this kid gets on board, uh, the sailor, and Fred tries to introduce him, he said, And this is Homer. What is it, Homer? Parrish. Glad to know you. Glad to know you, Sarge. And he offers his arm, and I love Al. Here's a sergeant who you can tell is a little bit older. He's probably been in the Army for a while, ended up serving, may have even, depending on his age, may have even had a stint in World War I. I don't yeah. know if he was quite that old, but he certainly is a little more grizzled, older guy. He looks at the hook for a second and goes, you know what, I'm just going to clasp four arms with you. Doesn't even give it a second thought after seeing the hook. Yep. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I liked it. And he looks worn out. You know, he he's playing the part great. They he jumps when they throw the bags in and they wake him up and uh he plays the part of a grizzled sergeant perfectly. Well, and and I like this cuz now all of a sudden we're being introduced to this third character cuz in the space of just this very natural dialogue of introducing folks, he says, "Glad to know you." And then, "Glad to know you, Sarge," says Homer. "Are you from Boone too?" Like assuming you're on the plane, maybe you're going to the same place. And he's like, "Yeah, sure am." So we got three characters now in the space of the first six minutes of this movie that are all trying to get home, all serving in different areas, but they're all going back to Boone. A.K.A. Cincinnati. Cincinnati. (laughs) This is a great line, and I wanted to get your take on it. Because Fred leans over and goes, so how long since you've been home? And Al thinks, a couple of centuries. (laughs) Yeah. And they kind of laugh at that line, but it wasn't, a hearty laugh. It was sort of a, I know what you mean laugh. Yep. I, I thought the same thing that it's uh, all three of them are like, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. And you think about it, particularly for Homer. I mean, Homer's a young kid and all of these guys seeing what they've seen in war. I mean, it ages them. And uh, if not outwardly, definitely inwardly. Yeah, actually, what what I think is cool about this conversation and, and feeling like having been home for centuries, 
the, the kind of the genesis of this entire story actually grew out of a 1944 Time magazine story that came out about a group of Marines who were taking a train back home to New York after coming in from San Diego. And so it was a trip across the United States that would take a couple of days by train. And they talked about how the closer they got to home, the more quiet and more nervous they got because they didn't know what to expect. Like they were so used to now the theater of war and what they were used to and what they had maybe even become that they were worried that they weren't going to be recognized or they wouldn't be able to fit in or that the world had gone on without them. And so they actually had as much anxiety and fear returning home as they felt sort of leaving for the front for the first time. Hmm. And so wow. I kind of got that sense from how long has it been since you home? Oh, I don't know, a couple of centuries, like a lifetime. Wow. That's that's pretty crazy. And it it has to feel like that. And in, in the space of a line, you know, it's like, if you take a second to think about it, it's like, ooh, wow. Well, and to put it in kind of a, um, a modern, more modern context, uh, my dad talks about how uh, for a lot of guys, they were in combat one day and like, you know, Monday you're in combat, you jump on a helicopter, you jump on an airplane and like 48 hours later, you're at home. Mm. And it, I don't know whether it would be, I would think it would be better to have those three or four days on a train to decompress a little bit and to think through it instead of just. Yeah. But on the flip side, you've got all the time in the world to start thinking about what if, what if, what if they don't accept me? What if people have changed? What if my girlfriend who said she was true was just saying it and she's not, what if my mom and dad don't, they don't recognize me or what if I disappoint or what if I, all the what ifs start hitting. What if that job that I expected to be there for me isn't there? Yeah. I mean, it's tough. Yeah. I mean, we, we all do that. Human beings, let's face it, our brains are wired to immediately go to the negative. Can you imagine with all of the possible thoughts and repercussions and with that much time, if they'd been gone for a couple of years, maybe three, four years, maybe if they were, you know, from the initial recruitment campaigns and served in the in the European theater, I mean, if they weren't injured, if they, you know, kept going, they could have been there for years. Right. It wasn't like a one year and out. Like it is now. Right. So then we get to the line that I mentioned at the beginning when I talked about the description of the layout of the B-17. Fred says, Come on, I sit up in the radio compartment until after the takeoff. Then we'll get in the nose and get a nice view of the good old USA. Okay. And they all have that genuine smile of like, okay, yeah, he's the officer, number one, but the idea of being able to just sit back, relax, and take off, and then get a look at what what we're going to see as far as the landscape. It's going to be with us for the next several of these minutes this week of being in the nose of the plane. Right. And and I guess the other thing that's kind of cool about this is if they'd taken a train, they'd get it. They'd get that view of the U S but from the nose of the airplane, you really are seeing what you fought for. You are. Um, And I do like this. It's, it must've been either a converted uh, layout or, because we're we're post World War II, but the idea was was this was still a bomber. But all of the stuff that would have been there, the bomb site, the desk, we don't see it in the shot, and it's not actually even stopping them from being able to sit three across. Because ideally, Fred's character, if this had been configured in a bomber kind of setup, 
there would have been a bomb site right where Homer's sitting. Right. I was going to say the, what did they call it? The reticle would have been right there. Um, the machine gun, the forward machine gun would have been right there. Right. So yeah, it's a totally different configuration. So um, I don't know if it's been demilitarized for civilian, if it was never set up for the military, but for this particular shoot, the plane they're using, or at least the 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 infrastructure to then kind of superimpose a movie screen to make it look like they're flying, right. uh, which is a typical technique for that time. They didn't have uh, uh, budgets nor uh, insurance at that time. They didn't. They were going to put their their stars in a plane and have that plane go up for hours and hours on loop after loop to try to get a few uh, minutes of dialogue while they're flying over the good old USA. Oh, can you imagine the noise doing that? You'd never... Oh, well, they do it now. Bigger blockbusters, but, I mean, back then, yeah, they just it was easier to project. Uh, you know, set this in a studio, uh, put the cameras in place, and then project a screen so that way it looks like what they're looking out the window is actually the ground below when it's really just another movie. Right. I will tell you that... Um, I don't think the B-17 would have been flying this low in, in the United States. No. It does feel like we're in a, in a much smaller plane based on the shake and, and some of the, the camera work we'll get through the window, it felt like. And we're going to see some of the other shots in the next few minutes this week that it was almost... I, I get the feeling it wasn't shot out of a larger plane because it has too much of that smaller private kind of Cessna plane that would have been hovering maybe low. And maybe the director just wanted to capture the sense that you could make out the trees. You could make out automobiles. You could even make out the shapes of people below just for what the the dialogue will be of returning to America. And from an artistic perspective, still not quite ground level. You know, even though they were technically on the ground, these three guys are all talking about now going actually home. They're heading to their who they where they call home Boone and on their way they're not quite even with everybody they're still kind of a bird's eye or a, kind of a further away as if they're not quite connected with the real world just yet right right yeah and um that has to be a surreal feeling for them we do get a shot of the B7 uh, the B17 taking off and I will tell you, I, I didn't think about this last week, and, and I'll mention it maybe more as we go through other minutes. This director, and maybe it was just that style, everything we're doing is a dissolve. It's a fade in and out from one scene to the next. Even within scenes, loves the dissolve. The, or the, uh, the, the, it's not a cut where it's a hard break or in, an, in another place or fade to black and somewhere. It's the dissolve. One's going out while one's coming in. And he does this a lot so far in the first six minutes of this movie. I noticed that. And I was wondering if it was because it's just the the next step in the story or... I don't know if that's just the, the style of filmmaking of the day uh, yeah. to help transition. And you're going to actually see, and I'm going to point it out later in the end of the week, when they end up just inserting stock footage for no other reason than, well, we got to transition out to somewhere else. We'll just use some... Pictures of clouds. <laughs> uh, I, I'll keep an eye out to see because I didn't really pay as much of attention until we're starting to really dissect these minutes, but lots of dissolves used so far to transition either from closer to the counter or across a field or walking from one place to another or just the as if the passage of time, but sometimes that passage of time is only a couple of minutes and sometimes it may be an hour. We don't know. It's just 
they're constantly using that that dissolve throughout these first six minutes so far. Sure. We do get those last two bits of dialogue talking about looking down. In fact, the uh, the actual line is uh, from Homer. Boy, oh boy, look at that. Look at those automobiles. And you could tell, even for someone who's been through what he's been through, you can tell he hasn't said it yet, but he's really excited to be flying in a plane. For somebody who was like talking about being, you know, on a ship and being, you know, in the Navy, he may have never flown. And we don't know that yet. That's what I was wondering, because at that time, he wouldn't have had too much reason as a kid to fly. Uh, and then in his military service, he probably went by train from post to post, and then he was on a boat. He was in a ship. Yeah, yeah. So we'll keep an eye on that. But he definitely has that sense of true. Wow, look at that! Like, like I'm flying. Where Fred, he seems used to it. Sarge, like anybody else, you don't mind looking out the window when you're flying. Everybody kind of likes the window seat for a time, but you don't get the old sense. The older guys are as excited, almost as if they're more used to flying either good or either for good or bad but homer's definitely excited right well and i can relate i used to i always wanted to sit by the window but now that i've flown so much for business it's like give me the aisle seat <laughs> i Get want me the out room. of the plane the minute it lands <laughs> yeah let me stretch out into the aisle you know and uh i've got long legs so i, I need the space and uh yeah somebody else can have the window seat it's great but I, you know, I'm good. All right. Well, before we wrap up today, we've got a lot going on on this plane. There's going to be a lot of good dialogue between these guys. And some of the dialogue will have to explain what it actually means and what it meant during uh, for folks in, in foxholes or in wartime. But we'll leave that for the rest of the week. Do you have anything else in this minute that we need to talk about? Uh, no, I don't think so. Other than the fact that there is a lot of junk in the plane that wouldn't have been there when it was actually flying in combat. Uh, they're definitely using it, using it as a transport now. Yeah, well, and we heard that, that, you know, that they're going to make several stops along the way. Are you okay riding this on whatever deliveries or whatever else it's got cargo-wise? And they were like, absolutely. We're, we're going to be home tomorrow. That's, that's good to us. That's all you care about at that point. All right, well, before we uh, wrap up the details of this podcast episode, we are a member of a podcast called The Wilder Ride. We have the first 10 minutes of this movie, and Walt, for folks who may have skipped around or missed it, where can people learn a little bit more about us? Best place to learn about us is on our website, thewilderride.com. And we were fortunate enough when we got started, nobody else had the Wilder Ride as their thing. So anywhere you want to find us, you're going to find us as the Wilder Ride. And that includes on Facebook, where you find us at facebook.com slash thewilderride. You can follow us there, and then a button's going to pop up that allows you to join our listeners group. And I encourage you to do that. You'll be asked three quick, easy questions, and then you're in. And we don't talk politics. We don't talk any of that stuff. It's just entertainment, uh, Gene Wilder, what's going on in the podcast, other fun stuff that people post. Fantastic place to have a great time to kick back and disconnect from the rest of the world. And I want to encourage everybody to come back tomorrow. We're going to continue discussing this scene and figure out where these three all play out, maybe get a little backstory from each of them, or at least a little insights into their backstory. And I want to encourage you to make sure that you've subscribed to this podcast. If you someone just shared it with you on social media, you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, pretty much everywhere you can get your podcast today. You can learn more about the project, the team, and everybody else by going to thebestminutes.com. And if you want to engage social media-wise, 
There is a listeners group you need to apply, but it would be pretty easy to get in. And then you can have a discussion with all of the other Movies by Minutes hosts, all the folks behind the scenes, and whoever else is interested in this movie. You can go to Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe. That is on Facebook. And if you're a Twitter user, The Best Minutes on Twitter. Tomorrow, come on back. Got another minute of the best years of our lives right here on the Best Minutes Podcast. I think I need a B seventeen. I'd like to just fly junk around. I've seen your I've seen your eating habits. What you need is a B twelve, a B six. <laughs> Focus on those B's first. Yeah, well, you know, be cognizant of what you're yeah, eating. <laughs> be, maybe that will motivate me to get the weight down so I can get the plane. What's this extra money for? My luggage was exactly what it was supposed to weigh. Yes, but not you. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.